in your Bibles this morning, will you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 14, verse number 25, that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look to your holy word this morning. Lord, this passage of your holy word is filled with words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May our ears be open. As he said at the end of this passage, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Father, may our ears be open to hear not just the words audibly with our ears, but to hear with our hearts, that our hearts and minds would be open to understand and receive and welcome the word of God. May your spirit help us to do that this morning. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In his commentary on this passage, Kent Hughes tells the story of an expedition that took place in 1845. Sir John Franklin and 138 officers and men embarked from England to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two triple-masted barks. Each sailing vessel carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal. They took a 12-day supply of coal for a voyage that would have taken them between two to three years. So their backup supply of coal was 12 days. But instead of additional coal, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ, playing 50 tunes, china place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware. They looked like they were going to the Royal Officers Club instead of to the Arctic Seas. 
The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. Well, you can imagine how it turned out. The two ships set out amidst enormous glory and fanfare. Two months later, a British whaling captain met the two ships in Lancaster Sound, and he reported back to England that the officers and men were in high spirits and doing well. He was the last European to see any of them alive. For 20 years, search parties recovered bodies from all over the frozen sea. In one group of frozen bodies, they found place settings of sterling silver flatware engraved with officers' initials and family crests. Another search party found two more bodies with some chocolate, some guns, some tea, and a large amount of table silver flatware. Sir John Franklin and 138 men perished because they underestimated the requirements of the Arctic exploration. They ignorantly imagined a pleasure cruise amidst the comforts of their English officers' clubs. They exchanged necessities for luxuries, and their ignorance led to their death. In short, they did not count the cost, did they? They didn't count the cost. They were going on a very difficult expedition, but they went as if they were going to a party. And it cost them their lives. In our passage that we're focusing on this morning, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what is he on his way to Jerusalem to do? To die, isn't he? He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. He is aware of that mission. He knows that he will be betrayed and killed in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says, In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So he knew what awaited him in Jerusalem when he got there. But as he's traveling toward Jerusalem, Luke tells us in verse 25 that there were large crowds who were traveling with Jesus. But he had something that he wanted to tell them. Jesus knew the cost. He knew what was awaiting him. But many of his so-called followers did not know the cost, did they? During his ministry, Jesus had crowds and multitudes of people that followed him at different times. But many of them, as you read through the Gospels, many of them did not last, did they? After Jesus died, how many were gathered in the upper room? Just a handful, really, in comparison to the multitudes and crowds of people that followed him throughout his ministry. At several points in the Gospels, the writers tell us that many of Jesus' disciples left him and did not follow him anymore especially after he says hard things like what he is about to say in Luke chapter 14. In this particular instance in Luke, Jesus has a large crowd hanging on him, interested in what he has to say and what miracles he will perform. But no doubt, many of them were not genuine disciples, and Jesus knew that. So Jesus stops and he gives them a reality check as he lays out in unforgettable terms the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. He says in very clear terms in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, 
Such a person cannot be my disciple. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? He doesn't waste any time getting to the point. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that if a person wants to come and follow Christ, that he must dislike, detest, abhor, and loathe the most intimate members of his family? That wouldn't make much sense in the light of the fact that Jesus has already said in Luke that we are to love even our enemies. The scriptures tell us to honor our father and mother, right? So what does Jesus mean here then when he says to hate father and mother, sister and brother? Hatred is clearly not a mark of a follower of Christ. So what does he mean here in this passage? I think in this context, to hate essentially means to love less. To love less. If we look to uh, Matthew 10, 37, a parallel passage, we see that that's what Jesus intends here. In other words, Jesus is to be loved above all other relationships, including one's closest family relationships. We have another instance in the Bible where this word is used this way. In Genesis 29, verse 30, it says, Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. We know this story, don't we? And he worked for Laban another seven years. So verse 30 says he loved Rachel more than Leah, but look how it's phrased in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Literally what it says there, when he saw that Leah was hated. Well, did he really hate Leah in the sense of wanting ill will, murderous intentions on Leah? No, that's not what it means. It means that it basically he, he made a choice, right? He had a choice and he made, he made Rachel the favorite over Leah. We can see that that's wrong. There are many aspects of that passage that are wrong. But the point that I'm making is that what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate their father and mother, essentially what he's saying is you have to love me more than any other relationship in this world. So he's not telling us to actively hate, dislike, wish ill will upon anyone. But what happens when loyalty to a family member contradicts loyalty to Christ? What happens then? Jesus says, you have to count the cost and follow me over father and mother, sister and brother, over family members. He already told us something similar to this in back in Luke 12, verse 53. He says, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So a choice has to be made. In other words, the cost of discipleship to Christ may involve the sacrifice of personal relationships. This happens all over the world today. It may not happen as much in our context in the United States, especially in the American South. But there are places, many, many places in the world where to follow Jesus and to publicly express your allegiance to Jesus costs you everything. 
It costs you your family. You are disowned. You're excommunicated, if you will, from the family if you follow Jesus. So for some people, this statement that Jesus is making is not hypothetical at all. It's very real. But even for us, what if someone is being drawn to become a disciple of Jesus, but they know that they have all of these friends that they've had all their lives, but they know that those friendships will take them the wrong direction. They know that if they continue to hang around with these friends, these relationships that they've had, they will continue to draw that person back towards alcoholism or to drug use or to sexual immorality. And, but they know that the pull of Christ and his word is there. There is, there is an allegiance, a choice of allegiance that has to be made there, isn't there? I'm going to follow Christ, even if that costs me these friendships and relationships. I'm not saying it has to cost him those relationships. He can seek to be a witness to those people, seek to draw them to Christ. But Jesus is saying when a choice has to be made, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to choose? If if someone doesn't make Jesus their first priority, they cannot be his disciple. He even says in the passage, even above their own life, doesn't he? Even above their own life. Paul says in Romans 12 that now we are to be living sacrifices unto God. That is our acceptable act of worship. Now, we might think Jesus here, he's just talking to people who want to be really committed to him. He's not talking to all disciples or he's not talking to all believers or followers. This kind of decision is only required for the really committed ones, right? You can still be saved and have a relationship with Jesus without going to this extreme, right? No, wrong. There is no New Testament distinction between a believer and a disciple. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28, 19, 20? What is the great commission? Go into all the world and make believers. Go into all the world and make converts. Go into all the world and make people who pray a prayer. Go into all the world. No, he says, make disciples, doesn't he? Make disciples. That is the great commission. And what does Jesus say here about discipleship? There's a cost involved. There's no two-stage Christianity. There's not like those who are in and then those who are in and really serious. No, you're either in or you're not in. That's really what he's been saying to the Pharisees throughout this whole chapter of Luke chapter 14. You're either in or you're not in. So we're not talking about a two-class or two-stage Christianity here. To be a disciple is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. Look what Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So a similar uh, call to count the cost. And notice what he says in verse 24 of Luke 9. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. He's clearly talking about salvation here, isn't he? Discipleship is salvation. To be a disciple is to be saved. To be saved is to be 
a disciple. And so Jesus is calling us to carry our cross, to count the cost. Back in Luke 14, verse 27, he says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This just hit me. I I don't know if, I'm sure I've thought this before, but for some reason it hit me in particular this week in thinking about this passage. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We read that from our perspective, right? They're hearing this from the perspective of a Jesus who has never been to the cross, right? We, we read that from a perspective of, we know what Jesus is talking about there because he's been to the cross. He's died, he's suffered, he's risen. So when he says, take up your cross and follow him, we know what he's talking about there, but imagine the shock of the people who heard Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me when Jesus had not been to the cross. What was the, what was the image? What was the picture? What was the symbol of the cross in that time, in that Roman world? It was criminality, wasn't it? It was criminality. It was death. It was torture. It was suffering. It was the most, it was the worst thing that you could possibly imagine. It was the worst way to die. And Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow me. He's saying you are to be willing to suffer anything and everything, the worst possible thing that you can imagine to come after me and be my disciple. Now, let me just pause for a moment and ask, how much does that sound like a modern gospel presentation? Almost like night and day, doesn't it? A modern gospel presentation in 90% of evangelical churches out there. I just made up that percentage. But it's a lot. The call to salvation is essentially something like this. Do you want eternal life? Do you want to live forever? God loves you and he wants you to live forever. So choose Jesus. You want to choose Jesus and you want to live forever? Pray this prayer, right? I mean, that's the gospel presentation in a lot of churches. What, what is that gospel presentation missing? It's missing this, isn't it? It's missing the call to discipleship. It's missing repentance. It's missing turning from yourself to God renouncing your old ways and embracing Christ. It is not telling people, hey, if you come to Jesus Christ, you believe on him as your savior, you're coming to follow him. You're coming to learn from him. You're coming to walk in his ways. You're coming to be his disciple. That means your life is going to be different than it was before. not in any way saying you have to clean yourself up or work your way to Christ. Not what he's saying, but there's a cost that has to be counted, isn't there? Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
And so he gives a couple of illustrations about counting the cost in advance, about planning. He gives a couple of illustrations. He says in verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? I mean, any of you who have ever been involved in a building project, you know, remodel or anything like that, even fixing something in your house, you make a list of stuff you need, right? You, you start, okay, I need so many two by fours. I need so many sheets of drywall. I need, you know, mud and tape and I need nails and screws and I need all this stuff and tools that I don't have that I'm going to have to buy or borrow. And you, you plan in advance, don't you? And you think about what it's going to cost you in terms of money, but also in terms of blood, sweat, and tears in doing that project. You think about it ahead of time. Who goes and says, hey, I'm going to build a new addition on our house. I haven't planned anything. Let me knock out this wall. That's not how you do it, generally speaking, right? You count the cost. You think about it in advance. He says, if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. We've been in that situation before, probably some of us, where you've started something and couldn't finish it, or we've seen others who have started something and couldn't finish it. It it invites mocking, doesn't it? It invites scorn. Jesus is just using this as an illustration of discipleship. You You don't get into something without knowing what you're getting into. He gives another illustration. He says uh, in verse 30, that person was, began but wasn't able to finish. And then in verse 31, he gives another illustration. He says, what about a king who goes to war against another king? Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? You're going to go to battle with somebody. You're going to have to do some preparatory strategic planning, Right. You might be able to take that person, that, that country with 10,000 men. He's coming with 20,000. But you're going to have to know the strength of your men and their weapons and your battle plan and all that. You're going to have to know if you can do that. If not, and you're going to get wiped out, then you might say, hey, let's, let's make a deal, right? Let's, let's figure out what we can do to get along here and make conditions of peace. He says if he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace, you count the cost. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is a tough verse, isn't it? It's a tough verse. I'll tell you why it's tough. Because on the one hand, our temptation is to tone down the words of Jesus here, right? Our our temptation is to tone it down and say, well, Jesus is not necessarily calling everyone to poverty. Like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, Lord, what do I have to do to be saved? And do you remember Jesus' response to him? Sell everything you have and give to the poor and then you'll have eternal life. And oftentimes when we preach that passage, we rightly say, I think, that Jesus is not calling everyone to poverty, nor is he saying that the way you earn eternal life is through charity and giving everything that you have away. What is he doing there? He is exposing the condition of that man's heart, that he is in love with money. He is a covetous, greedy person who's not willing to give anything up 
for the sake of Christ. Essentially what Jesus is confronting that rich young ruler with is this. Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to follow me wherever I go? And clearly when he walked away sorrowful and wasn't willing to give anything away, Jesus knew he wasn't. He wasn't willing to count the cost. So we want to, we're tempted to tone down this verse and say, this is not necessarily saying that every single possession you have, you have to give away. And we want to say, he's not saying you can't own a house. He's not saying that you can't have a closet of several different outfits. He's not saying that you can't own a car. He's not saying that you can't have some money in your bank account. But what he's saying is you have to be willing to do these things. Put Jesus first. And I think there's an element of that that is right, that Jesus is not necessarily calling everyone to a complete, to a life of complete and utter poverty and giving everything away. But I think sometimes in toning down that verse, we lose its force. We lose its punch. And we kind of sweep it away from our own lives, from our own application to ourselves. And we kind of excuse ourselves and say, well, Jesus isn't calling everyone to do this. And we give ourselves a pass. But I think it's important that we take Jesus' word seriously. When was the last time we gave anything away to help someone in need? When was the last time that we gave up something of comfort to help someone who's in need? And I'm going to throw this out. And, And this is by no means gospel truth. This is not a verse of the word of God. I'm just throwing it out as a possible application just for something for the spirit to cause you to think in your own heart. If you spend more money on your entertainment and vacations than you do in giving to the Lord's work or to giving to people in need, then maybe there's a problem. If you give more, if you spend more on personal comforts, entertainment, cable, satellite, Disney Plus, Netflix, whatever, internet, computers, cell phones, new iPhones, new cars. If you spend your money on that in great proportion over and above what you are willing to give to the Lord's work or to those in need. What does that say about the condition of our hearts? Jesus says, those who are not, those who don't give up everything cannot be my disciples. Who's the model of that in the scriptures? The model of that is like Peter, right? Peter and James and John, Jesus called them and what did they do? They left everything and they followed him. So, I don't want to say that everyone has to sell their homes and sell their cars and and give all their clothes to goodwill out of their closets. But where is Jesus and his work 
and the needs of other people in our priority list. It is a mark of discipleship that we are willing to sacrifice. And Jesus concludes the passage in verse 34 and verse 35 with kind of a proverbial saying. He says in verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? He's talking about disciples. In another passage in Matthew, we know that Jesus has said that we are to be the salt of the earth. What is salt good for? Well, really, salt is good for many things, isn't it? I mean, salt makes things taste better. In the ancient world, you can use salt as a preservative of meats. Uh, salt had, had many uses in the ancient world. It was useful, had, had a lot of functions. But what happens if salt loses its salty properties? Whether it becomes diluted with other things and so it gives no more taste or it's become so diluted or broken down that it's not effective in preserving anything. What good is that salt? It's not good for anything, is it? And so you just throw it out. Throw it to the manure pile. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. What does that mean? Everyone can hear what Jesus is saying physically, right? Physically, audibly, if there was someone who was deaf there, he probably healed them. Everyone there could hear what he's saying physically, audibly, through their auditory nerve going to their mind. They could hear the words of Jesus, but in their minds, their hearts, the core of their being, there were many of them who could not hear. There are some whose eyes are opened. There are some whose eyes are closed. There are some whose ears are open. There are some whose ears are closed. Who opens them? God does, doesn't he? God does. And really from a broad scriptural perspective, what we see in many, many places of scripture is that left to ourselves in our own human nature, none of us have ears to hear. None of us have eyes to see. It takes God in his grace to open our eyes to see, to open our ears to hear. Not everyone is going to be able to receive a hard message like this that Jesus is giving. We read in John 6 after Jesus gave a really hard um, pointed message. It says at the end of John 6 that many of them walked away and no longer followed him. Messages like this from Jesus sometimes have a way of, of separating the sheep from the goats. Whose ears have really been opened? Whose eyes have really been opened? Whose hearts have really been made alive? A little while ago, I mentioned the typical gospel presentation. And I mentioned what it's missing. What it's missing is giving people the whole Christ. Because Christ is not just a fire insurance salesman, right? He's not just a fire insurance salesman. And, and if you sign on the dotted line and pray the prayer and you get a fire insurance contract that gives you a free pass out of hell for all of eternity. That's not who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He is so much more than that, isn't he? He's not just a prophet. He's the ultimate prophet. 
He's, he's not just a savior. He is the savior. He is not just a rabbi or master. He is the master, the rabbi. He is the Lord. He says right before he ascended to Matthew 28, 19 and 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. When the, the disciples went around proclaiming the gospel, read this in the book of Acts. You know what their message was? The kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God. The closing summary statement of Paul's ministry at the end of the book of Acts was he went everywhere proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and the kingdom of God. What does that mean? A core element of the apostolic message was Jesus is king. He's Lord. And he demands not only your faith, but your all. Demands your all. And so one way of understanding the point of what Jesus is saying here is to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior is to make the ultimate commitment to Jesus Christ in all that he is, including Lord of our lives. He is worthy of our all. And so we have to ask the question of ourselves, do I have ears to hear that? Do I have eyes to see that? Has my heart been opened? And has there really been a change in my life where people can see I am a follower, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ who counts the cost and is willing to give everything to follow Christ, the only difference between you and an unbeliever should not just be going to church on Sunday morning. There should be many, many aspects of our lives that illustrate, that show allegiance to the Lordship of Christ. May his word continue to teach our hearts and open our ears this morning. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we just call upon you today and ask that you would hear our prayer and that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. Father, I do not know the hearts of everyone here, but Lord, you do. And there may be someone here who has been perhaps all their life someone who has been following along with the crowd, thinking that they are a disciple of Jesus, but has never really counted the cost. Has never really thought about his call to take up the cross and follow him. Has never really thought about the call to give up everything to follow him. Father, I pray that you would make genuine disciples 
of all of us here this morning. And if there's someone who has been living that way, thinking they're a disciple, but perhaps not truly a regenerate, born-again disciple of Jesus, then Lord, give them ears to hear today and open their eyes. Lord, may your grace be poured out upon us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.